0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Good day. Welcome to New Books and History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel, and today I'm pleased and honored to have with us Secretary Robert Zolick. Secretary Zolick was Deputy Secretary of State under President George Bush the Younger, as well as U.S. Trade Representative with Cabinet rank. In the administration of President George Bush the Elder, he was White House Deputy Chief of Staff and also served, among other positions, Under Secretary of State at the um, State Department. More recently, he was President of the World Bank. And today, we are speaking about his book, America in the World, A History of U.S. Diplomacy and Foreign Policy, published by 12 Books Press. Welcome, Secretary Zolik.
0: Well, thank you, Charles. It was a pleasure to be with you,
1: uh Secretary Zolek. Why did you write this book
0: and, and you should call me Bob <laughs> um, so uh when I was in in uh in government i I drew on history as I thought about policymaking. and uh, part of my hope was to encourage others, perhaps the next generation to also do so um as your audience may know, Henry Kissinger wrote a book titled Diplomacy in the 90s, where he talked about history and foreign policy. But it was written from the perspective of, of European real politic. And so I wanted to try to write something that expressed more of the American experience and ideas. And so the approach I took was to focus on stories. I wanted to make it as readable as possible, people interested in biographies. And so each chapter concentrates on a person or a couple people, and episodes with practical problem solving. And what I had in mind was that many foreign policy courses these days focus on international relations theories. And those are intellectually fun to play with, but they're of limited usefulness when you actually uh, have to deal with a, a problem, whether German unification, as I did, or issues of trade agenda or Darfur. And so in a way, the book is a series of case studies where I try to explain carefully The background, but also offer my assessment. And uh, when you do something like this, you obviously have to love the subject matter. And I always enjoyed diplomatic history. But as your audience may know, it's somewhat faded as a discipline, in part because of the appropriate effort to bring in underappreciated actors and perspectives. But I think we lost something. And Fred Logoval, who's just produced a good biography of JFK, wrote a piece where he said, you know, why do we stop teaching political history? And so this is a bit of a nudge. And then finally, uh, when I was in various executive posts, I often had younger colleagues. And I suppose I used to torture them by asking questions on history because I didn't really know how much background they had. And insofar as they did know history, I I got the impression that it was pretty much from World War II on. And so a lot of this book also covers the first 150 years, which has some wonderful figures and, and interesting incidents we can learn from.
1: Can you expand a bit on what you mean when you say, quote, The pragmatism of American diplomacy has focused on achieving results in particular matters and not applying theories, unquote.
0: So what I'm picking up here a little bit is, uh, as your audience may know, the probably most distinctive American contribution to philosophy is that of pragmatism from James, William James and Dewey. And what they were focusing on was rejecting artificial intellectual conventions, abstractions, sort of universal timeless truths, and instead trying to focus on uh, practical consequences that, that form from experience. And so I draw an analogy here in the diplomatic field, which is as opposed to trying to just manipulate international relations theories, my experience, and I think what I found in my reading, is that most officials are trying to seek out what works. And to do so, you have to pay close attention to realities on the ground. Issues of power, economics, military capacity, technology, sometimes votes. One needs to have a very good sense of processes and institutions, how they work. Uh, It certainly helps to know positions of others and their interests. A good sense of timing is very important. And I suppose there's also a recognition that uh, if one can achieve imperfect results in a far from perfect world, um, That's a that can be a good outcome. And in a way, I hope to have a bit of a optimism at a time there is a lot of discouragement, which is that history can offer insights on how to do better as opposed to acceptance of timeless obstacles. So I, I'm not uh, downplaying the role of visions and ideas, but I think people have pursued them flexibly. People have ideologies, but they don't pursue them rigidly. So there's there's really no formula for success. Um, but what I'm trying to recognize is how people begin with problems and look to experience and match means with ends.
1: In the book, you make reference to five traditions of American diplomacy. What are they?
0: So I, I don't do this framework in a heavy handed way. I want the stories uh, to tell, uh, to relay their own insights. But I do offer these five traditions as a framework. And the first is the importance of North America, which I find interesting because, you know, if you go on foreign affairs websites, you'll find discussions of Europe and Asia and Latin America and Mideast and Africa. But very rarely do people focus on North America. And yet, obviously, it was important in the 19th century. In the 20th century, um, we almost went to war with Mexico again. Uh, at the start of World War One, Germany proposed that Mexico also join with Germany against the United States, for which they'd receive New Mexico, Texas, and Arizona. For some reason, they left out California. Um, but also, if you think about the biggest nuclear showdown in the Cold War, it's, uh, it takes place in Cuba with the Cuban Missile Crisis, but also something like the North American Free Trade Agreement. I believe was much more, and I was part of this. Was much more than a than a trade uh, agreement. It was a recognition that the old corporate state of Mexico was changing. The old system ruled under the PRI, and it was an effort to try to embrace uh, in an institutional way uh, uh, the Mexican structures. But I think it's also relevant for today and in the future. So if you ask yourself, what issues is the American are uh, the American public most interested in? They'll focus on topics like immigration or narcotics or economic exchange, um, environmental questions. Well, all those are at the heart of of a North American agenda. And I came across a speech that Ronald Reagan gave in 1979. It was launching his presidential campaign. And you could almost not imagine this today where he said, look, we would be better off if Mexico and Canada were stronger. And it's time that we stop thinking about our nearest neighbors as foreigners, which is a little different than the political rhetoric of today. And what he had in mind, and it's something that I worked on over the years, was not only to deal with the common interests of the three North American countries, but to recognize that the U.S. and Canada and Mexico will be more influential in the world if we're working from a strong continental base. So hoping to have you know three democracies, integrated economies, uh, energy self-sufficiency and ability to export better demographics than the rest of the world. You know, 500 million North Americans puts 1.3 billion Chinese in a different perspective. So there's a strategy for the future about North America. Second, I focus on trade, transnationalism and technology. And what I'm trying to do in this uh, idea is to recognize that from the very start of the United States, Americans looked upon trade as more than a matter of economic efficiency. They saw it as, a, as, a, as their relations with others in the world. Indeed, trade was our first foreign policy. But recall, in 1776 and in the early part of the 19th century, uh, you, the U.S. was dealing with a world of empires and mercantilism. So this was also a process of prying open the international system for the role of private parties. Today we'd call them transnational actors. And similarly, there's an important element I try to draw in the book about technology and innovation. The third is the importance of alliances. And as people who've studied history know, for the first 150 years, given Washington and Jefferson's warnings, American policy tries to avoid alliances. And then in 1947 to 49, and I explained how this is in many ways quite accidental, the United States creates a new type of alliance system. It's a system... Based on political and economic and diplomatic ties as well as military ones. And for the next 70 years, the challenge is, how does the United States lead that system? What are the borderlines? I mean, West Berlin, Vietnam, what's the extent of our security relations? And I think this question will be important for us in the future. The fourth tradition is the importance of Congress and, and public support. So many foreign policy specialists uh, ignore this topic. Uh, Kennan, for example, was totally inept at dealing with the Congress. But my argument is is that to be able to sustain policy, and and the most effective executive branch players, whether it was Ben Franklin in the Revolution with his ties with Congress, Thomas Jefferson using Congress in his negotiations with the Louisiana Purchase, you know, two more recent figures have to be able to gain support. And I try to draw out the role that Senator Vandenberg played in 1947-49 as a way of also highlighting subsequent figures, whether it's a John McCain or Richard Lugar or Sam Nunn, and pose the question of who will play that role today. And the fifth tradition is America's purpose. And I distinguish this from the idea of exceptionalism. Uh, Many countries feel they're exceptional, but what I'm trying to emphasize here is from the very founding of the United States, uh, Americans saw themselves with a larger purpose. And The best way I can explain this is for those of you that still carry wallets. Sometime take out your wallet, look at the back of a dollar bill, and you'll see the Great Seal of the United States. Maybe you never paid much attention to it. But you'll see that unfinished pyramid. And notice it's unfinished. Uh, it has the Eye of Providence above it. And below it, it has Novus Ordo Seclorum, New Order of the Ages. So from the very start, these Americans were thinking about creating something bigger than themselves. Now, my view is that the purpose changes over time. At first, it's simply to preserve a republic in a world of empires. Then it's the preservation of the union. The concept of union, by the way, as many scholars have, I think, underrecognized the importance of this to how Americans think about uh, sort of confederal relations or cooperative relations around the world after the success in the Civil War, balance of power relations in 1900 for Woodrow Wilson, it's to make the world safe for democracy, not to make democracies, but make it safe for FDR. It's the four freedoms um, in the Cold War. It's uh, the leader of the free world for Bill Clinton. It's the indispensable power. And my point is, I think this is part of the American ethos of its place in the world. And so, again, that's an important question as we face the future.
1: How did the monroe Do- I'm, sorry, I'm sorry how did the Monroe Declaration become the Monroe Doctrine?
0: That's an interesting question um, the, when in the chapter I have on on John Quincy Adams and the development of the uh, the Declaration, I explain the context of how this occurs and it it makes the overall theme i mean neither neither Monroe nor John Quincy Adams actually started out with the design of coming out with this declaration that has historical resonance. They're dealing with the challenge of the era. They're dealing with the concern that with the success of the uh, the uh, the Holy Alliance in Europe uh, with monarchies and, and religion, that, that there's a worry that they're going to come and, and uh, sort of take back the Latin American republics. The Russians are on the Pacific shore. So for for John Quincy Adams, it's really a statement about having Europe stay out of continental affairs and and hemispheric affairs. But the other side of the coin is the United States is not going to engage itself in European politics. The big issue of the day at that time was sort of uh, the Greek democracy movement trying to break away from the Ottoman Empire. Um so it's really a statement of his ambition for the continental United States and our independence. Um, it later changes into a broader uh, definition of U.S. security interests uh, throughout the hemisphere, and obviously has some aspects of intervention that left some some wounds and sores. I found it interesting that uh, two of the great international figures in the early 20th century, both quite good international lawyers, Ella Root and Charles Evans Hughes sort of emphasize this as a question of a security policy. It's not they, they, they do not try to uh, put it as a matter of international law, which, of course, it, it can't stand as.
1: You refer to Secretary of State Seward as a, quote, peaceful expansionist, uh, unquote, why so?
0: He's a wonderful figure. Uh, he sort of slipped from history until Doris Kearns Goodwin wrote her book about a team of rivals. And But what I wanted to draw out is his partnership with Lincoln in the Civil War was quite extraordinary. I mean, there's many books written about the Civil War, battles and generals and slavery and social effects, very few written on the foreign policy. And part of that chapter focuses on how they managed to avoid British and French intervention. Uh, without which we would not have succeeded in the Civil War. But uh, after Lincoln dies, remember, this is the time of impeachment of Andrew Johnson. It's a very difficult period. But Seward has a vision and a practical sense that uh, I think many people have overlooked. Number one, he has this idea of a North American Union. But remember, he had opposed the Mexican War. And he actually, in 1865, he manages to thwart Grant, who wants to send troops into Mexico to support Benito Juarez against Maximilian and the French uh, intervention, uh, putting him on the throne in, in Mexico, because he's worried about the cost of another intervention. So but and so recall in in 1867, you create the Canadian Confederation, in part because London was worried that the U.S. might uh, sort of try to settle scores by moving north into Canada. And you also have Juarez uh, push the French out and and uh, and Maximilian out, so you have the restoration of the Republic in Mexico. And so, what in the North American context, Seward is thinking: how how will these three republics draw closer to each other? In part, sort of based on on commerce, and it's a way it's a, it's a little bit uh, in line with the tradition that I just mentioned. Um, he uh, is a person who believes very strongly in the sort of how commerce can be a magnet. So he's not an imperialist in the sense of trying to take over territories. He talks about uh, sort of the, 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 the commerce as being sort of the major attraction. Um, but he also uh, has an idea about um, the United States security in a global environment. So recall, many people may have, have known of Seward as the man who bought Alaska. It turns out he tried to get British Columbia as well. Uh, there was a, a movement in British Columbia to join the United States. Uh, recall at this time with the new Canadian Confederation, you had four provinces in the east, vast territory in between. Then you had British Columbia. Um, and actually, the four provinces in the east offered British Columbia. They said, what do you want to join the Confederation? And the British Columbia said, we want a transcontinental railway, and we want you to help deal with some of our debts. So uh, he, uh, Seward's efforts to try to negotiate that as part of a settlement for the Alabama claims falls to the side. Um, he acquires, uh, what, what's called Brooks Island. We later know it as Midway Island, which becomes quite important in 1942. He wants to acquire, uh, the Sandwich Islands, Hawaii. He's unable to do so, uh, but he has a trade agreement that, that brings Hawaii more closely. He purchases the Virgin Islands, the Danish Virgin Islands, but but the Senate doesn't ratify it. So later we do acquire that in 1917. And people may be amused to know that he also wanted to buy Greenland and Iceland. But this, uh, he ran into difficulties at the time of uh, uh, working with Congress over the impeachment of Andrew Johnson. He also really creates the first uh, unequal treaty or equal treaty with China. It's an interesting story. The Qing dynasty has a former American diplomat, Charles Burlingham, sort of negotiate this. And it has some interesting features about education and sort of a quality of treatment. He was quite a visionary. And, and indeed, for his time, uh, you know, he makes a point that you know civilizations always advance through the intermingling of races, which was not a common view uh, in the United States in mid-19th century. He's uh, quite a striking figure, as well as a shrewd politician.
1: Why do you endorse, unlike, say, George Kennan, Secretary of State John Hayes open-door policy.
0: Yes, that's a wonderful example. And the reason I included that chapter, because I wanted to emphasize that sometimes in diplomacy, one has to play a weak hand. So recall, this is 1899-1900, and the United States really has two objectives in China at this time. And recall, the European countries have just carved up sub-Saharan Africa into many colonies, and there's a movement to do the same with Japan and Russia in China. China could have gone the way of sub-Saharan Africa in terms of being carved up. But the U.S. wanted to preserve China's territorial integrity. It wasn't willing to fight a war over it. it wasn't willing to send troops to do so. Um, and we also wanted to maintain openness for commerce, as, as well as, frankly, for the missionary movement, which was quite important. And so um, Seward or, or Hay. Uh, kind of uses the circumstances to sort of draft these circulars, these two notes. And uh, people like Kennan will criticize them because they say, well, we really weren't able to back it up with force. But Hay and it makes the argument that he finds the common ground, he builds on it slightly, and he holds it together with the weak gravity of international cooperation. And in fact, when some people at the time said, Oh, this is a moral stand. And, and Hayes said, Ah, that's mere flapdoodle. He said, No, no, that's, it's a question of how you can use your interest effectively. And then, uh, quite tellingly, this becomes an important foundation for future U.S. relations in the region, which I pick up again in the chapter on the Washington Naval Conference, Charles Evans Hughes in 1921. It, it starts to define the foreign policy landscape. So, as you mentioned, you know, Canada is dismissive because it's not backed by full military power. William Appelman, Williams from the left, talks like sort of economic colonialism. Um, But I think it's an important example for today in that uh, I saw a former secretary of defense, Mattis, give an interview where he said, you know, the United States is at a point where it may not have total domain dominance. And I was reflecting historically through much of our history, we didn't have total domain dominance. We're not going to have total domain dominance in all aspects of the world going forward. So there's some skills to be learned about diplomacy with a weak hand. And by the way, Ben Franklin's quite good at this as well.
1: Would you rate President Theodore Roosevelt in the realm of pure diplomatic skills and knowledge of foreign languages and foreign countries as perhaps the greatest American president? Well, I'm always
0: I'm always uh, careful with uh, sort of putting one in the first rank, but he certainly uh, got to be in in the top tier. And uh let me explain what I was trying to do in this chapter. Many people would have associated Teddy Roosevelt with San Juan Hill or uh, the uh, expression of American power, the great white fleet, sort of America coming of age uh, at the turn of the 20th century. But my chapter is on how he mediates the Russo-Japanese War of 1904-05, for which he wins, by the way, the Nobel Peace Prize, um, as well as the first Moroccan crisis of 1905-06. So one of these events forgotten to history. But if you think about what happens over the next decade, you know, another conflict among the great powers on the periphery of Europe, this time in the Balkans, leads to World War I. And so what's striking about Roosevelt is this is an era where the United States diplomatic corps is still quite amateurish. So it's not, you don't really have the the institutional network that it later develops. And by sheer force of energy and personal networks, he he enlists, in a sense, the the German ambassador to the United States, uh, one of his groomsmen, who was a British minister in, in St. Petersburg. He gets the French ambassador and he gets world leaders to sort of recognize that what he's trying to do is to mediate a conflict so that uh russia at first russia doesn't uh take control of of northeast asia then when japan beats the russians quite severely in military terms they did it doesn't end up on top and then similarly with morocco he's trying to deal with a conflict of between germany and france that uh Challenge the relationship with Britain. Russia's in the midst of its sort of internal revolution that could have led to a conflagration. So it's a combination of understanding how he wants to sort of uh, sort of maintain a balance of power so that the great powers don't move into the war that they will in 1914. But at the same time, his his skill as a mediator and as in many of the tales, there's a wonderful little anecdotes. For example. Uh, then the mediation almost falls apart because there's a lack of communication within the Japanese delegation, which Tokyo only learns about through an indirect route. And so I partly like to emphasize in these stories the, the possibilities of miscalculation, which I think are significant in any realm of human affairs.
1: Why do you believe that Secretary of State Hull was an important figure in the history of American foreign relations?
0: So Hull was the longest-serving Secretary of State Uh, in the context of World War II. Most historians or students of the period recognize that Franklin Roosevelt was the one really running the show. Um, But Hull plays a very important role in the era of trade policy. So recall that um, from the founding of the country until uh, 1934, Trade policy was set by Congress setting individual tariffs on thousands of goods. It becomes quite a political exercise. And depending on your point of view, the high or low point is the Smoot-Hawley Bill of 1930, which moves up the average U.S. tariff to about 59 percent. Our trade drops between 40 and 70 percent. It contributes to the debacle of the Great Depression. And uh, Hull manages to persuade Roosevelt to back a bill called the Reciprocal Trade Agreements Act of 1934. And students of policy today would be shocked. The whole bill is three pages long. When I looked at the bill, I was so struck by the difference in length. But it makes a regime shift. It it moves the authority over trade to the executive branch to negotiate agreements to lower tariffs. And at that point, focus was primarily on tariffs. Um, and uh, And those agreements at that point uh, permitted 50% cuts and they didn't have to go back to Congress. It's interesting for people who are students of the New Deal. At first, Roosevelt wants this to be a permanent authority, as, as many other transferred authorities from Congress were. Um, Congress wants to hold on to trade authority. So it grants this for three years, it always has to be renewed. And over the next 70 years, this is the issue that you'll hear about with Fast Track or Trade Promotion Authority. Given the executive branch a leadership role to negotiate trade agreements, which become more complex, cover more items, and later require an up or down vote from Congress. And so that's all changed uh, in the period uh, of, of Hull. In his tenure, he steps down in 1944. He negotiates 31 agreements with 28 countries. Um, in doing so, he really lowers U.S. tariffs to sort of pre-Smooth-Hawley levels. But more importantly... Each of these agreements include some core principles about most favored nation treatment, national treatment, trying to move barriers into tariffs so they can be reduced. And those are the principles that underpin what later becomes the GATT system, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, leading to the great economic and trade revival after World War II, and eventually the World Trade Organization. So it's a, it's a turning point, and it's also relevant for today because uh, since that time, while presidents have struggled with the politics of trade, traditionally the executive branch has remained more uh, liberalizing than individual members of Congress would until the current administration so the one of the big debates is the Trump administration for example has used the National Security Authority to raise tariffs with Canada and Mexico, which you have to scratch your head about so this is again an issue that will be playing out in the future.
1: How does the story of Dr. Vannevar Bush fit into your narrative?
0: Yes, that's a very interesting. You won't find uh, Vannevar Bush in many of the chapters in in American foreign policy books. Um, And the reason I included him was because um, he represents, he's in some ways, the godfather of an American diplomacy that recognizes sort of the ongoing change in science and technology. So to give you a flavor of this, um, I, I open each chapter often with a vignette. And in his, I start with July 1945. And, and you can't make this up. And he, he he witnesses the atomic bomb test in New Mexico. And he's the principal liaison with Franklin Roosevelt on the atomic bomb. He had served, he created a special network in World War II to bring scientific advisors in to make technology uh, changes to help. Uh, the war effort. Quite vital, actually, in dealing with the U-boats as well. Second, um, he issues a report called Science, the Endless Frontier. And like any good bureaucratic official, he had, had gotten Roosevelt in '44 to ask him to write this report. And it basically outlines the future of American science policy in what at Stanford is called the triple helix. So the idea of basic research from the government linked to universities and also connected with the private sector. And that becomes very important, in my view, in the ultimate success of the United States in the Cold War versus the Soviet Union's state-directed system. It's obviously relevant to technology competition with China today, but also uh, as you think about issues on the agenda that are outside traditional foreign policy, such as pandemics and biological security or climate change, It raises the question of how you combine science and and technology with diplomacy. It was just coincidental. I I was the lead of the U.S. effort in the 1992 framework treaty for climate change in the first Bush administration. Um, And the only treaty, by the way, that ever was ratified uh, by the Senate. And that treaty was designed to have flexibilities to kind of build in knowledge and scientific uh, capacity. So that's the second part that builds off. Uh, July 45. And the third one is absolutely amazing. He writes an article in the Atlantic magazine that imagines something called the Memex machine. And and what he's really anticipating is the role of a personal computer, that's something that would sit on your desk and give you access to information, links, po- possibilities. And remember, this is 1945. We're just moving into the age of big computers, much less personal computers. And it turns out that a radar technician who sent off to the Philippines as World War II is ending, comes up with, sees a reprint of this article in Life magazine, and it inspires him to become one of the leaders of the personal computer movement. And indeed, um, one of the graduate students of Vannevar Bush helps hold Silicon Valley. So you have this wonderful connection of of three elements in one month, uh, which is uh, a wonderful way of trying to underscore, while we often talk about foreign policy as geopolitics, my career, it's been trying to also emphasize the economic dimension. I think we also have to think about the science and technology aspects.
1: In the case of the war in Vietnam, would you prioritize, in terms of the debacle in decision making which led up to the Americanization of the war in 1964 65, was it more a problem relating to individuals? In particular, I suppose, President Johnson. And National Security Advisor Mac George Bundy, or was it a matter of process in terms of how decisions were arrived at?
0: So this was a, a in some ways, an intellectually challenging but rewarding chapter to write. Um, at first, I wasn't going to include it because it's been well-covered ground. There's been a lot researched on this topic, um, but I had a seminar a faculty seminar and graduate school student seminar at Harvard that said I, ha- I had to deal with it. So the way I approached it was, as you suggested, I focus on a narrow window. The decision in late 1964, early 65, to really Americanize the war with ground troops. And I, and this one, I try to apply my diplomatic experience to say sort of what went wrong. And there, there have been some very interesting books done uh, by the people such as Les Gelb that said, look, you couldn't have avoided this. He sort of explains how the system sort of works. So I, I was pressed to ask, what were the problems? And I identified six factors, and they, they cover both the people and the process. Ultimately, the president, to answer your question, has to be in charge. But one is the power of recent history. And so they were using the Korea analogy. By the way, they used it in different ways about Chinese intervention and, and uh, the willingness to support a conflict. They obviously hearken back to sort of World War II. Um, Second, and this is relevant today, if you think about our debates of the Mideast and Gulf, the debates often people use shorthand of recent historical events. And my my caution here is that analogies can often be misleading. It's important to think about history as a way of prodding to ask questions as opposed to finding sort of direct analogies. Second, uh, the role of credibility. Henry Kissinger has this wonderful line where he says, credibility for states is, is akin to uh, character for individuals. It's the importance. There's certainly that that's true. But my caution here is when you hear somebody debating a topic and the logic seems a little weak and they want to rely on credibility, watch your wallet because it needs to be more than credibility. And then, importantly, the role of presidential experience. And this is an interesting contrast with John F. Kennedy. Recall, Johnson was a majority leader in the Senate. Senate majority leaders don't have as much power as the Speaker of the House. They're basically always trying to assemble legislative coalitions, and they they want to avoid dissent. And a lot of what you can see Johnson doing in late 64, 65, is he's, he's trying to assemble legislative coalitions. And the contrast is one that John F. Kennedy learned after the Bay of Pigs, Eisenhower backed him, but said, Mr. President, did you get all your advisors in the room to argue this in front of you so you could kind of hear the different pieces and make your own decision? And Kennedy had to admit he didn't. And in fact, later in the Cuban Missile Crisis and in Berlin and others, he uses Bobby Kennedy to not only have the debate, but sort of keep the options open. Well, that was not the way that Johnson uh, approached the task. Um, and I think the process suffered. Then the fourth was an over-reliance on military power. And yesterday, I, I did an event on the book uh, with uh, retired General Petraeus with National Defense University. So I was dealing with hundreds of military officers. And it's kind of interesting in that I was trying to say, obviously, militaries have to believe they're going to win if they're going to fight. But one also has to be a little careful about the use and sometimes abuse of military power. I think actually in recent years, sometimes Americans are justifiably proud of their military think that it can solve all problems. And uh, and it can't, as we've seen in some of these circumstances. And that leads to the fifth one, which is military powers linked to diplomacy. So in the Vietnam story, what's quite interesting is Secretary of State Rusk is kind of off stage. You know, where's your Secretary of State in this process? And he's reflecting this view that you fight the war, then you engage in diplomacy. And this is sometimes an American concept, uh, quite contrast with the idea of how you need to sort of integrate those two together. Um, and then finally, uh, the failure of advisors. And this chapter brought out to me the importance of presidential teams. I mean, no president brings all the attributes to the job. It's very significant to see how they interact with others. I've often observed, you know, uh, presidents don't have equals, but they might have peers, people who can talk to them in a straight way. And in the LBJ administration, there's no chief of staff. McGeorge Bundy is the national security advisor, but he tends to see his job in a more limited executing fashion. It would have been very difficult because Johnson's viewing this primarily in domestic political terms. He's fearful that if he walks away from Vietnam, that will lose the great society and he feels After 1964, he's got about two years to get this done. But I tried to sketch out, at least so people could uh, have their own, make their own judgment, of how you might have put together a political strategy to exit at this time, uh, including, frankly, relying on some key figures in the Senate that would have given him some political cover. There's no doubt Johnson would have taken a political hit, but he certainly took a great hit, and the country took a great hit uh, by going forward.
1: I noticed then that uh, in your discussions of uh, the Nixon-Kissinger administration and in particular Henry Kissinger's um, interactions uh, on uh, his um, reestablishment, he and uh, President Nixon of course, of relations with the People's Republic of China that you criticize correctly to my mind, but it's very rare that one comes across this criticism in the literature Kissinger's tendency to um, criticize in front of uh, his Chinese interlocutors, uh, in particular Mao, Tong and Chou En Lai, America's allies. Do you have any idea why he engaged in this particular pattern of behavior? Something which, actually, if one reads uh, the um, uh, transcripts of meetings in subsequent years—73, 74, 75—he continues to do.
0: Yeah, well, at the starting point, and this is where history has 2020 hindsight, one needs to recall something that Haldeman wrote in his diaries, which was that there wasn't a day in the Nixon administration that Vietnam didn't loom over the whole process. So Nixon and, and Kissinger are trying to extricate uh, from Vietnam uh, a, a debacle in both human and uh, military and, and political terms. And to their credit, they engage with what becomes known as the triangular diplomacy to try to ease that withdrawal and also keep the United States on the initiative. And what what one has to remember is that China had been sort of a black box since 1949. And so I think Kissinger, in an understandable way, is trying to build confidence with the Chinese. He's trying to get a sense that sort of a shared strategic perspective and the Chinese animosity towards Japan, uh, was very strong then. It actually, I think it remains quite strong today, uh, underneath the surface because of the devastation in World War II, um, and their, their anxiety about, uh, sort of Japan's, um, uh, sort of reconciliation in contrast, say, with, with Germany. And so he plays on that, but he's also trying to suggest sort of, um, the strategic flexibility of the United States, uh, because at the end of the day, he's trying to convince the Chinese that the United States can be an effective counterweight with China against the Soviet Union, which is his prime purpose. Uh, as you mentioned, I, I, I think he overdoes it. I understand the temptation to do it, but I think the United States is always strongest, when it works with its allies, this is an issue today we face with with China. Uh, we're more effective when we have have uh, partnerships. It's part of my story also uh, in dealing with the Cold War in Europe, where whether it's Atchison or Kennedy or my boss, James Baker, and President Bush, you always have to decide what's your first priority, your alliance relations or the relations with Moscow. And so um, I think there's a way that one can recognize Uh, how Japan and South Korea and other countries fit within your strategic plan without necessarily uh, sort of uh, sort of treating them as uh, as dismissively as as comes across. There's another aspect of this, though, and it it, is somewhat related, which is that I think Nixon and Kissinger really don't have a full appreciation of America's economic resilience. I mean, they are. They are people who, uh, in in a shrewd way, are trying to move towards a more multipolar system. They're trying to move from what they figured the first 20 years of American leadership. And in a sense, they're trying to manage decline. Now, that's always difficult politically. The United States doesn't like to think of itself as declining. And in this case, I think they misread what was the underlying ability of the United States to reinvent itself economically and, and in technology which really comes to the fore in the 1980s. I mean, I think the key part of the Cold War story is the United States' ability after the difficult 1970s uh, and Western Europe uh, to advance far more than the Soviet Union could keep up with. So I think this is also part of a sense of, of not fully appreciating some of these other aspects of power or diplomacy that I try to draw out in the book. But having said that, I, I, I have great respect for Kissinger and Nixon skills. And I I think one has to appreciate in some ways you could argue like today, the United States was on its back foot. There was a question of its reliability, whether it could be, you know, whether it was losing its touch as as a world leader. And and Nixon and Kissinger were masters of using drama and the surprise move. You know, so in, in the bigger picture, if you think about it, during this era, you've got the moon landing and you've got the opening to China, around the same time and kind of shows the United States, ability to reestablish itself as a leading power.
1: How important to the ultimate success of uh, the foreign policy of president Ronald Reagan was the factor of uh, luck.
0: Well, as Napoleon said, he always picked his marshals. I mean, Having uh, luck and good fortune was a great quality. I think historians have a hard time understanding Reagan and, uh, I, I enjoyed working on this chapter because I, I shared it with a friend at the University of Texas who's writing a biography on Reagan. And he thought it was the best one chapter sort of summary. What I was trying to emphasize here was Reagan was fundamentally waging uh, the Cold War as a battle of ideas. And I use a speech that he gave in Westminster in 1982, a really down period in the, in the, uh, in the Cold War. We forget Kind of the economic problems and some of the anxieties at that that moment uh, to define uh, what would be the, the contest of, of political systems, but and and also what I try to draw with Reagan is is that uh, he 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 used public oratory as a weapon, and historians journalists at the time have a hard time looking at speeches and understanding their effect. They don't have specific proposals. And many of Reagan's speeches don't have specific proposals, but they're framing ideas. And what I trace this with Reagan is that in some ways to understand the nature of his leadership as a president, you have to go back uh, to his days with General Electric and then particularly all these radio, these five minute radio addresses that he would do each week, which he wrote himself. And he was in some ways the classic autodidact. He would read about a subject and then he'd use his writing to frame it. And he was quite a careful writer. I, I had a friend who was the staff secretary for Reagan. And he, he said people always refer to him as the great communicator. In some ways, he was the great editor. So he was using the process of writing, whether a speech or his radio addresses, to focus his thinking. And it gave him a great sense of conviction. So that was, I think, his power. On the point of luck, what I try to draw out is that attribute needed to be combined with a partnership that would also draw him into the operational sides of governing, which was not Reagan's sort of natural strength. George Shultz plays this role, um, particularly in Reagan's second term, and re- recognizes that Reagan is, likes to be a negotiator. Reagan was a negotiator uh, in Hollywood, um, and he, he draws Reagan into the negotiation with Gorbachev, And by the way, Reagan's a very tough negotiator. Um, And similarly, on the domestic side, uh, my former boss, Baker, plays this role in the first term uh, as White House chief of staff, second term as Treasury secretary. And in contrast, if you look at the the sort of the the uh, the tragedy of Iran-Contra relations in the Middle East, that environment was not conducive for Reagan's strengths and frankly, he didn't have people like Schultz and Baker sort of watching out over the issue. So part of my point here goes back to one that I, I mentioned earlier, which is presidential teams matter. Uh, the people around the president matter. I think the skill that that Reagan brought of restoring America's confidence in itself was extremely powerful. It was very important in ending the Cold War. It's quite effective with Gorbachev. Um, but uh, one also under, understands uh, leaders' weaknesses uh, so that you can offset them.
1: Would you say that the relationship between President George Herbert Walker Bush and uh, Secretary of State James Baker was perhaps in the post-1945 period ideal uh, between a president and a Secretary of State perhaps even better than the relationship between President Truman and Secretary of State Atchison? Um uh,
0: it was, I, I I have to always be careful on this because I worked for Baker for eight years and I was part of that process. So one has to, you know, as a writer of this, one reason I didn't go into some of the current issues, you, you have to be careful about your own bias. Um, but it would certainly rank up there as one of the most, if not the strongest relationship. Um, and, and let me, I suppose there's an analogy, the, the closest analogy I would find actually would be Thomas Jefferson and Madison but even that relationship was not quite what you had with Bush and Baker. And What I, what I want to explain here is that many people uh, understandably recall President Bush as a true gentleman. He, he really was. And it's quite unusual for top level politicians to have those qualities. He was also prudent and careful. But what many people overlook is he was fiercely competitive. He liked to win, whether it was tennis or whether he played golf or frankly in foreign policy. And Baker, recall, is his friend from Houston. They share the loss of, of close family members. They share the political basis. They're really like an older and younger brother. And Baker understood uh, Bush's desire to win. And Baker was extraordinary as sort of a man of action, putting things together, getting things done. So it kind of fits my sort of model of pragmatism. And this is apparent in, uh, for example, in early 1989, where uh, Brent Scowcroft, Dick Cheney, Bob Gates, uh, some others are more reluctant about Gorbachev. They think he's not going to succeed. They're worried about what would happen if they reach out too far. But Bush does not want to be on the back heels. He wants to be able to uh, be seen as, as competing with Gorbachev. And Baker understands this. And I think one part that I try to draw out in this chapter which, again, historians have not paid as much attention to, they tend to focus on the Russia question. At that time, our key concern was the German question. And the German question you know, was basically, since 1871, how do you deal with a big country at the heart of Europe without clear borders? We would fought in two world wars. You had a divided Germany. And the challenge was, um, how do you uh, make sure that you can support German democracy but within an alliance and also European community, then European Union structure. So Baker and Bush start out with the focus on strengthening the alliance relationships with a very bold proposal on conventional forces um, reduction in in May of 1989, uh, which really uh, frames the nature of the relationships, push the issue of short range nuclear missiles, which was a tension with, with Germany to the side, Um, But it highlights both how the two work together, but also uh, how they uh, prioritize their alliance relations, which, by the way, they weren't uh, insensitive to the challenges that Gorbachev faced, but they felt that dealing with Eastern Europe and the challenges of the then Soviet Union would be better able to handle if you had strong alliance relations. So it really goes back a little bit to our discussion that we had, about with Nixon and Kissinger, although the Asian alliances followed a different pattern.
1: Setting aside any personal biases that you might have, having worked under him, would you agree that uh, Secretary of State James A. Baker belongs in the pantheon of great American Secretaries of State?
0: Yeah, I certainly do. Uh, there's a there's a new book out uh, by Peter Baker and Susan Glazer on on Baker. Uh, and for people interested in the political side and the negotiating side, it, it's a good tale. But I think it misses somewhat is th- this was also a man of substance. They, they want to focus on his skills as a negotiator and maneuvering politically. And that's certainly part of his power. But he was very much focused also on the challenges of, of getting things done or, as I sometimes explain, sort of connect the dots. So let me give you an example um, in their book, they focus on uh, his effort in early 1989, which I was deeply involved with, was, you remember, we had these conflicts between the Reagan administration, Democratic Congress, over Central America in the 80s. And uh, it led to some of the political difficulties with Iran-Contra. It was a question of could you get support for the Nicaraguan resistance of a humanitarian nature? Um, then Baker uh, negotiates a package to support the resistance, not a military package, but just to keep them in, in, in play, is part of a larger strategy where he engages, he builds off the Escapulas process, the Central American Peace Initiative. And that in itself was an unusual step for the United States. You're, you're in a sense, sort of building off a Costa Rican initiative. At the same, He also combines it with the uh, pressure on the Soviet Union to withdraw support for the Sandinista regime. And he focuses on the upcoming election that the Sandinistas had agreed to in early 1990 and really floods the country, including with Jimmy Carter and others with observers. And, and at that time, the Sandinistas were actually thrown out. And so the point is, it wasn't just a, a congressional negotiation. It was part of a, a larger strategy. And so I think in, as historians understand Baker, the Baker-Bush relationship is critical, but also understanding what I try to do in other chapters, which is to connect the dots for people, to see how individual problems uh, relate to a larger framework. And obviously, I, that'll be a challenge that U.S. foreign policy faces in the future as well.
1: Looking at the future, though it's not uh, something that uh, history necessarily provides us with an idea about, um, would you say that you are optimistic that uh, regardless of the current difficulties facing American foreign policy, that the United States still has the attributes necessary to overcome them?
0: The United States has incredible resources and capacities. And I mean, I have to be frank with you. I think we've misused it over the past four years. I think the Trump approach has been more transactional and egocentric. And we've kind of lost some of our standing with alliances and the international economic system. He, he tends to not see the interconnections uh, among the deal-making. But let me, again, as, as I would try to do this in practical terms, give you a sense of how it could change. Um, if if former Vice President Biden's elected, he's going to face a huge domestic agenda. He's going to have recovery from pandemic and free health care system. He's got uh, a need for an inclusive economic recovery. He's got immigration issues. He's got racial issues. He's got climate and environmental issues. So on the one hand, there's a lesson here from, from Baker with Reagan in 1981, where Baker said to President Reagan, Mr. President, you've got three priorities, economic recovery, economic recovery, and economic recovery. And what he was would emphasize today is I think if Biden's elected, they'd be wise to focus their energies on the combination of pandemic and, and sort of economic recovery. But um, what that also means on the international side is, is that even though Biden has a great foreign policy network and might want to focus on a lot of these issues, he's going to have to spend a lot of his time on that domestic agenda. And your students of politics will recall that. Presidents Carter, Clinton and Obama were all elected with Democratic Congresses at high expectations. And after two years, they suffered major reverses. Two of them, they lost uh, branches of the, of the Congress. The, the Biden people will be well aware of that. But then if you think about the international side, what my suggestion is to think how you could leverage your domestic agenda internationally. So, for example, if you do something on immigration, um, something perhaps with the Dreamers, uh, try to connect it with sort of rebuilding this North American partnership with Mexico. If you uh, rejoin the WHO and we've got sort of development of vaccines, um, what we should also do is draw in type of institutions. I used to uh, lead the World Bank in an effort to really try to help with the vaccine and healthcare system distribution in developing countries, which the WHO is not really uh, sort of capable of doing. Um, President Bush 43, remember, launched this very powerful HIV AIDS uh, and malaria and tuberculosis initiative with Sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, the United States could do something similar on that to sort of regain the initiative. In the climate area, if you do something on carbon, don't just rejoin the Paris Accord, but think of how you could expand support in the developing world, for example, with a soil carbon initiative, which could help African agriculture, but also be very important in absorbing uh, some of the carbon similar with avoided deforestation or forestation or in parts of the world, you're going to need adaptation initiatives. And my point is this, is that you could, you could leverage those uh, aspects you're dealing with domestically, internationally. And if you think about that agenda, combined with some issues of data and cybersecurity and keeping an eye on the traditional security concerns such as nuclear weapons and regional dangers, Uh, You could start to rebuild the foundation of your partnership with your European and your Pacific allies. And based on that, focus on the two biggest questions of our future, which will be the future of free societies and dealing with China. So uh, I apologize for the long description of it. But what I'm trying to say is, you know, what other country has the capability to do what I just described? Now, whether we'll do it is another question. But yes, of course, the United States has that ability but it comes back to one other theme which we've talked about. To do so, you have to have to get public support. Executives can't just do this on their own. But here I'll, I'll give you two little facts. One, in October of 1945, so this is the month after Japan has surrendered in World War II, Gallup does a poll uh, about American priorities. And when they asked about the, our international relations, a vital interest in the United States, 7% of the American public say yes. This is October 1945. Uh, and by 1946, the number rises all the way up to 14%. So Truman had his own hands full in terms of trying to explain the challenges facing the world. But maybe I reflected this week. I saw the Chicago Council on Global Affairs does an annual survey about American public opinion. And it's quite interesting in terms of engagement with the world. 66% of Americans favor it. And in fact, they believe we should consult with allies, even if now and then we have to change our position. I think support for NATO was 73%. Uh, is trade good was 82%. Uh, is, is, uh, even for jobs, it was like 59%. Now, these are, uh, inchoate attitudes. They, they have to be shaped and framed. But in some ways, I think, you know, some of the elite commentators have lost confidence in their own country more than the public has. The question is always the challenge of framing it to get things done. And the agenda that I just outlined strikes me as one that suits the current set of problems, but also would allow the United States to reestablish its international leadership position.
1: On that observation, I would like to thank you very much, Secretary Zolik, for being so kind and speak with us today. This is Charles Coutillo. Thanks for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thank you, Secretary Zolik.
0: Thanks, Charles. Pleased to be with you.